0: We missed last week because I wanted to um, give it a little bit more time to the background, the the, um, the social contract theorists, and some of the philosophies that have helped produce some of the conditions under which we live in our modern world. I'm going to go back to that for a few minutes tonight because I think it's worth reviewing um, and set that against the classical view. I hope it's clear why, because the, 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 it seems to me one of the major things we can take away from a comparison like that is to see that, that so, so much of the philosophy of the modern world is rationalistic, it's a product of the mind, It doesn't always come from experiences or draw from experiences to form itself, whereas the classical view was, was uh, very much rooted in nature, in human experiences. So, the, one of the advantages of looking back at that classical world is that we can see there's a lot that we can learn um, to strengthen our powers of reason, so that we're not rationalistic, we're, we're not using reason in a void, that there's a rationality, what the ancients would have called a logos, present everywhere in, in the world, and it was important for us to stay in tune with that logos. The, 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 everything in the world meant. Everything in the world spoke. There was meaning everywhere. Um, and w- we don't see the world that way anymore. So there's a value in going back and setting those two worldviews against each other, e- even, even if it's just in a simplistic way, to give some sense of what's, what's behind the modern world? Why, why, what, why are so many of the, the artists that we're reading so dark? Uh, The the view that we're getting from them is very, very different from the ancient, epic, the the classical Greek and Roman world. It's certainly different from the medieval world and poets like Dante. Even early Renaissance poets like Shakespeare. We're in a very different world and I think it's important to have, to to make some effort to try to understand why. Where did all of this come from? but before we go there, I want to go back. We didn't read East Coker last week, and I want to pick this up so we stay with Eliot. Remember in the, um, in East Coker, in the first section, I I said that in each one of the four quartets, Eliot's dealing with one of the four principal elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Um, I, I don't think that's a a, a narrow principle for him—it's it, it, something he handles loosely. But there's something to be said for it, and that one, the principle that's at the core of East Coker is earth. And we're made aware of it in a way that's not quite as true in Burton Norton. But he returns to some of the things that he introduced in, in Burton Norton. One of them is the cyclical nature of things—that things come into being and they pass away. But remember, in Burton Norton, he said. If, if we're stuck in time, if we're not related to something outside of time, there's no way to redeem experiences. We're stuck. In East Coker, he, he, he's presenting us with images of things that are cyclical, that come into being and pass away. So it, indirectly he's raising this question again, where will redemption come from? Um, um, that's one of the major things. Remember his answer to it in Bert Norton was this notion of the still point, this intersection between the t- between time and the timeless. Um, let's see, I don't think there's there's more. In section two, which is the section I'm going to read, he introduces us to a season, it, it's mid-fall, we're looking back to a summer, and he's asking a question, what do we make of these signs of spring present. It's an anomaly. Um, I'm gonna leave it at that, but I want you, I want you to remember this. I, I'd like you to remember what I just said and remember this opening to East Coker, or the, the opening to the second section. This question that he's raising about this point in fall, this November moment, and the way there are signs of spring already present. What he does in Little Gidding, which is the final quartet, Um, with midwinter spring, to me, is one of the most extraordinary things in all of modern poetry. I don't think he quite got there in East Coker, but but if you read East Coker and then look back, I mean, if you read Little Gideon and look back in East Coker, you can see that the seeds of something were planted here, and that they really come to fruition in Little Gideon, but we're going to have to wait to get there, but I just want you to remember this because it's extraordinary, um, I believe what he's doing there. um, And we get some early signs of it here. And he will return in East Coker to one of the major themes in all of the quartets and that is the word, language. The struggle to use words to find something and then um, have to deal with the realization that you no longer found the words to say something, when you realize that what you had to say is no longer important because your mind has gone on. If the word is present, if the Logos is present in a world that's logocentric, then how are we to look at the struggle to find words that locate us in time while we're we're rooted in this still point moment? (laughs) Was that clear? Let me go, over. well, here, here, I can't, I can't even remember what I said, so I tell you, what students in the class would say, would you repeat that? I would go, I just, I, I can't, because I don't even know what I said. I was being honest. Um, you know that in Burton Norton, he talks about um, not knowing where we are and where we're going, that we're in a, the, the minute we think we're, we can locate ourselves in place, if we're pilgrims, this is an Augustinian thing that we've been talking about forever. If we're a pilgrim people, we're not meant to be here. It's not meant to be our home. If we ever get too settled here, it's a sign that something's wrong. We're a pilgrim people on our way. When we, stay make, when we start making our homes final, and we can't give up our homes in some sense spiritually, we're in trouble. I don't think I'm not trying. I'm not an anarchist, <laughs> but. But we're a pilgrim people. If we are, we're always on the way. And I I said this a number of times in this, I I don't like the word class. I've said this a number of times in our meetings. If we take the Eucharist and we are a part of God's kingdom, then that we enter into his eternal life, that the kingdom is in us, we are part of it. Where are we? It, is it possible for us to orient ourselves anymore the way people who look at the social world as a final end? Is it possible for us to look at ourselves that way? We can't. Because you know for them, that's all there is. Have a house, have a career, and money. You've defined yourself. You're set, you're established. You're part of the established world. If you're a Christian, we don't have that luxury, that comfort. Something, is, something in us should be aware. We know where we are. We're in time. We can learn, but at the same time, mystically, spiritually, we're somewhere else, and where that else is, we're not sure, or we're not living in mystery. Is that clear? Yes. I hope. So Eliot's constantly dealing with this um, mystery of where we are, in Burton Norton, he he dealt with that in terms of language. He will do that in every single quartet. He will talk about the struggle to find words because for him words relate him to the word. The ultimate source of our use of language is God. Somehow that gives us the ability to relate to each other, to ourselves. That's an extraordinary thing. We take it for granted. He doesn't. So the struggle to use words and here he'll say, the struggle to use words to say something when as soon as we've said it we realize the words are no longer adequate for what we said because we're not there anymore. Because if we're traveling, if we're in this mysterious, if we live in this mystery um, and we're not rigidly fixing ourselves here, then we're aware that something is going on that makes it hard for us to locate where we are. And that's true for words. And the question for him is, and I've been raising this question all along, are are the poets the one who help us to see things that other people don't? Do they help locate us in a time and a place in a way that's not true for other people? And you know my response to that. It's it's what they're doing. So he will do that here. So I'm just saying in advance of this section. So, So these themes, air, earth, fire, and water, the cyclical nature of things, the struggle with words to find... To use words to find out where we are. It's the rare poet who can use words to present us in a concrete situation and still locate us someplace else. Just as in the Mass with the Eucharist. Yeah? Okay. okay. East Coker, <coughs> second section. T.S. Eliot, East Coker. Remember, just briefly, um, to, to, to help carry forward by carrying something, I don't want to read the first section again, but remember, it opens with the line, in my beginning is my end, in succession, houses rise and fall, crumble, things come into being, they fall away. And he ends that opening section saying, there's a time for building and a time for living and for generation, and a time for wind to break the loose and pain. There's a time for things coming into being, there's a time for them to be destroyed. That's out of Ecclesiastes, I'm assuming everybody hears that. A time for the wind to break the loose in pain and to shake the wainscot where the field mouse trots and to shake the tattered arras woven with the silent motto. And you know the silent motto was usually an emblem of a family dynasty, a line that connected people with the past. Remember it begins in my beginning is my end, in succession houses rise and fall. In my beginning and in my end are the words that um, Mary, Queen of Spots, Scott, spoke when she went to her death. And remember, I think I went over this, right? It was an affirmation of her faith, because she knew she was going to die, and that death was the beginning of the life that she looked forward to with her God. Okay? And if you've looked at the end of East Coker, if you've read to the end, you'll know that it ends reversing that. In my end is my beginning. And he got that from Dante. That's straight out of Dante. East Coker was a family resident for Eliot's ancestor, Thomas um, Thomas Andrew, what was the, um, Andrew Eliot, um, who was a, um, a very important person, one of Eliot's ancestors in the 17th century and he, I think he wrote the book, the, the Book of the Governor, which was a really important book in England at the time, and the passage in East Coker, remember when he, in the second section of The Beginning, says, In my beginning is my end, now the light falls across an open field, and then we get that description of the couple dancing, they're, they're celebrating the sacrament of marriage, and he slips into Old English. I'll read that now. So. East Coker was that ancient manor, It, it was the place of his ancestry, so he's looking back to his historical roots and honoring a really important person in his life and actually taking a quote from the book, I think it was called The Book of the Governor. So let me start back there with this, just this brief passage and then I'll come to section two. In that open field if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, On a summer midnight, you can hear the music of the weak pipe, and the little drum, and see them dancing around the bonfire, the association of man and woman in donsignia signifying matrimony, a dignified and commodious sacrament, two and two necessaria conjunction, holding each other by the hand and the arm, or the arm, which a betokened copcorda, Round and round the fire, leaping through the flames or join in circles, rustically solemn or in rustic laughter, lifting heavy feet and clumsy shoes, earth feet, loam feet, lifted in country mirth, mirth of those long since under earth, nourishing the corn. There's that image. From earth we came, to earth we return, that c- returning to earth will be will provide the nourishment for some other thing to come into life. Um, And he ends that section, Dawn points to what? And another day prepares for heat and silence. Out at sea the dawn wind wrinkles and slides. I am here, or there, or elsewhere, in my beginning. Stop and think about that. In my beginnings, my end, in my... Where are we in time? We think we know so much about where we are. I'm here, or there, or else... Where is he? Where are we? With all of our certitudes. Okay, is that... Section 2. What is the late November doing with the disturbance of the spring and creatures of the summer heat and snowdrops writhing under feet and hollyhocks that aim too high, red into gray and tumbled down, late roses filled with early snow. Thunder rolled by the rolling stars simulates triumphal cars, deployed in constellated wars. Scorpion fights against the sun until the sun and moon go down. Comets weep and Leonids fly, hunt the heavens and the plains world in a vortex that shall bring the world to that destructive fire which burns before the ice camp rains." That was a way of putting it not very satisfactory, a periphrastic study in a worn-out poetical fashion, leaving one still with the intolerable wrestle with words and meaning. The poetry does not matter. It was not, to start again, what one had expected, What was to be the value of the long look forward to, long hoped for calm, the autumnal serenity and the wisdom of age? Had they deceived us or deceived themselves, quiet voiced elders, bequeathing us merely a a recipe for deceit? The serenity only a deliberate beatitude, the wisdom only the knowledge of dead secrets, unless in the darkness into which they peered, or from which they turn their eyes. There is, it seems, to us at best only a limited value in a knowledge derived from experience." We constantly use our mind to give us certainties about where we are and very often older people, old our age, pass on this wisdom as if we think we know so much, as if it's without any sense that there's going to be a difference between what we have and what we experience and what the people following us are gonna, but that habit rests with us you know, uh, inveterately. Um, and remember Dante in the Commedia begins in the middle way, in the middle of my life, um, in about what's to come. There is, it seems to me, at best only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. The knowledge imposes a pattern and falsifies For the pattern is new in every moment, and every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm, in the middle, not only in the middle of the way, but all the way, in a dark wood, in a bramble, on the edge of a grimpen where is no secure foothold, and menaced by monsters, fancy lights risking enchantment. Do not let me hear of the wisdom of old men, but rather of their folly, their fear of fear and frenzy, their fear of possession, belonging to another, or to others, or to God. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. The houses are all gone under the sea. The dancers are all gone under the hill. We're going to Hit a dark spot in section three. Oh, dark, dark, dark. They all go into the dark. I hope you're all reading this to yourselves at home. Okay, let's start. We're doing two last stories tonight. I think they're both extraordinary stories. Um, but to Put all of this into perspective again, and to get ready to finish with these two stories, I want to just go back for a moment. Since Melville, we've been in the modern world, in modernity, dealing with the world turned away from God. That's explicit. We saw it in Melville. We've seen it in Faulkner's *Sound and Fury*. Ishmael is turning from the world. Um, the, the New England Christian world is a world that is, has ceased to live its faith. Ishmael goes out to sea with Ahab in his quest to to try to understand the the origins of metaphysical evil. Where did did such an evil come from that a whale would have bitten off his leg? Um, All the men shared in that quest because every man shared a wound. That's with all of us. We all carry our wounds with us. And we saw Melville's answer to it. I I thought it's remarkable. I mean, the way he separates himself from Mel- or Ahab's quest and gradually learns to love the being of things, that everywhere he f- looks he finds meaning. In The Sound of the Fury we saw a much much darker work. We're, it Sound of the Fury is much closer to us in time. It's more representative of the culture that we're more immediately a part of. We're, we're 100 years, 150 years removed from Melville's work. Faulkner's world is our own and what we saw is a very very dark world. Um, we are we're, we're a part of a family that is going to hell, and that has just lost its sense of its relation to a past or a God, um, <clears throat> adultery, suicide, um, drinking to death, promiscuity, and there's, uh, there's, n- there's no bad that isn't going on in that world. Um, since that time we've been reading these short stories, and most of them have been in the vein of grotesque comedy and it, it's it's a funny world but if you look at the characters there most of them are women and most of these writers, this is not a male thing this is not a male, I'm sorry, I, I, just look, I really wanted Marcy and Bob to be here tonight but I, um, I'll call them I hope, I hope everything's okay but what we see in those stories are not the result of a male thing because all the writers, the major ones, were women um, and we're getting a really dark view of women um, it's interesting to me, I want to just offer a thought on that, that wasn't by design, it wasn't what I had in my mind. I, I was trying to put together a collection of stories. Suzanne was actually the one urging me, she said, give them a break. Faulkner's hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you can thank Suzanne for this. Anyway, what I tried to do is pull together the very best writers and their best stories. And, but it's turned out that so many of them are dealing with They're presenting this view of modern woman that's not a very flattering view. It's interesting for me to look at that if you look at the ancient world, the the principle of evil is um, masculine. It's the masculine intellect. It was there in Shakespeare, in Leontes. Remember the the contrast between Leontes and the power of the intellect to, to make something that's not there bad? The habit of the masculine mind to use his mind to see bad when it's not there. So, and Shakespeare's fully aware of what's going on. What Leontes was doing was destroying being. Being is, yeah, I am that am that's God. Being is our world. The masculine intellect, in its in a something in a dark aspect of it, looks at the world and finds wrong. That's what Leontes did, and the the the, re- the practical result of that was putting his wife in prison, accusing her of adultery, and then sending his daughter off to be killed. Dante saw the, the, the principle of evil as masculine as well. There's not a big surprise in that. Satan was the greatest angel. The, an angel, by definition, is all intellect. And I think I've gone through this before. They don't have bodies. My image of the angel is a dragon. They fly. They fly. They bring fire, but the light that God gave them is turned to bad. Angel, dragons want to destroy. They move about. Yeah. They hoard, huh? Your image of fallen angels? Yeah, yes, fallen angels. <laughs> um, masculine, yeah? Um, so when you look back at the ancient world, the Oedipus, Dante was going to hell, if you remember from the Divine Comedy. When you get into the modern world and these women start writing, if you look at the difference between Jane Austen Jane Austen and Welty and O'Connor and Catherine and Porter, Jane Austen belongs to a very staid um, Methodist world, very proper, okay, nothing sacramental. Jane Austen doesn't deal with the divine. God doesn't come into her stories. And you know how much I love her. I, 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 my debt to her is extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the difference between Jane Austen and these modern writers, you're seeing a radical, radical difference because all of these modern women are dealing with things in women that are not attractive, that are the, that are the counterpart to the masculine world. Spiritually, they're, they're mean, um, they're c- catty, they're cutting, um, and, and they do what they do under the guise of innocence, that they're not doing anything wrong. They're all doing what they do as if, Everything they're doing is good. So we're getting a very, very different picture. That wasn't by design, but I'm, it's, it's interesting to me that, that the masculine has been sort of out in the open for ages, but in the modern world, woman is getting uncovered, and largely by women writers and the ones that we're reading, so. And we've seen that that a, a change in genre because the the mode of representing these stories is largely grotesque comedy. It's not true for Hemingway because I don't think Hemingway is explicitly dealing with spiritual way, spiritual matters the way Welty and O'Connor and um, Catherine Ann Porter are. Catherine Ann, sto- Catherine Ann Porter's story of flowering Judas is as you know is deeply religious. It's religious at its core. So we've been looking at a modern world that has turned away from God and we've seen repeatedly the effects of it and it's been interesting because we've also seen the way in which men in the absence of God make substitutes the rituals that they enact, the things that they do to give meaning to their lives um, and the effect on their lives, what happens to their relationships with each other so it's been a very dark view and I've asked in all of this um, where's Christ? is he present? I'm gonna ask a question in a minute. It's been an overriding concern for me. I wanna go back now to the, just briefly to remind everybody um, b- um, of the difference between modernity and its understanding of the nature of man and the classical view of man. I wanted, we've done this, but I wanna just briefly review it. Before I do, I want, I, because we're gonna leave the stories behind, we won't go back to them. We didn't deal with this question, and I wanna deal with it tonight, um, just for a minute. <laughs> I'm sorry Bob and Marcy are not here. Um, Mrs. May is not a likable person. I, 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 uh, Marcy ex- expressed her concern for her because she um, she spent so much of her life struggling to better her life and she did. But, um, she and she has the support of a community that that values what she did because she became so successful. She managed on her own to produce this farm uh, and make it good. But everything about her life is in so many ways negative. Her sons cannot get along. They fight. When we set them next to the Greenleaf sons, we're aware of fundamental differences in the family. Both boys in some sense are represent something if her, the way she conducts her life. Um, she she lives in envy, she, she's afraid that what she's won will be lost, she doesn't let anybody come into her world, she wants to keep the sunlight out, there are several passages in which that's made clear, and she's defined in terms of this circle, we've talked about all of that, that circle is an expression of her self-reliance, she does not want to let anybody come into that world, it's where she maintains control. The bull comes into that world, and as we've seen, the, burl was a, the bull was a Christ figure, in the very beginning, he had the wreath on his head, remember? And at the end, when he wounds her, um, he, he impales himself and pierces her heart. So in some ways, we're, we're being asked to see that grace has come into her world the only way it could, through violence. Because her habit is to push things away, to not let anybody in. The one question that I didn't ask and I want to just take a second with it, I don't want to spend any time. What's the difference between Mrs. Greenfield and her sons and the Greenleaf family? Because they really do stand off in contrast in a way that's significant for the action of the story, right? They, they speak to us. What's the difference between her and her family and the Greenleafs and their sons, their family? Can you flesh that out a little bit? See,
1: well, the uh, Greenleaf family, if you will, uh, very much has the presence of God in their life. I think he several times refers to you know God's God's will or God's you know praising God for everything, be it good or bad, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't and you and you don't see that at all. And Mrs. May
0: and She's perfect. actually horrified. The thought that Mrs. Greenleaf would throw herself on the earth and bury those prayers and pray to her is disgusting, that she would not sink to such a thing. So she, she
1: and her family seem to be more focused on the world in a sense of surviving and succeeding. Yes. Whereas the other family yes. seems to think that Praise God for
0: whatever they've been able
2: to do. Whatever, it's yeah. It's, it's evident in the outcome. Both families got what they deserve. Both what? Both families got what they deserve.
0: That the, the, In terms of justice. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, the one woman was just an evil, bitter woman who got killed at the end. You say she found grace. I completely disagree with that. Yeah. But I, I mean, she got what she deserved and so did her family. And the other one got what they deserved. They got it to live. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
0: yeah. to go back to this question of Calvin that I've been raising right along since nineteen. 19- Carl, did you have something? Um, her, her habit of thinking that. Well, wait, let me go back. Um, the the, to me the most inhuman doctrine of Calvin was the doctrine of predestination. Some people are destined, and and we talked about this with Ahab. If you grow up, I mean, I that through a. You remember it was a lightning rod for me, just the thought that if God predestined somebody to damnation before they're even born, that's an image of a really cruel God and Ahab wrestles with that question, and for me he, he almost epitomized the, the Calvinistic problem in the modern world that, um, that, that that humiliated him, the idea that he could be predestined, foreordained his image of, of rail tracks that were rigidly set in place. Was one of the images that he used was so inhuman. Um, if you're a Calvinistic, if you're Calvin, remember there's no sacramental life. The sacraments are taken away in Calvin's world, so Calvin tends to reduce itself to a moral code. One of the evidences of your election is your place in the society in which you live. You don't you don't live with mysteries. The proof of your election is how successful you are. If, if nature's depraved and there's an element of depravity in you because he believes that all human beings were depraved, a radically different that is from a Catholic view, man is by essence depraved, then there's an incentive for you to show you're not depraved by constantly aspiring to get better because the idea that you're not would, would be terrifying to any human being, I think. One of the differences between the May family and the Greenleaf family is the Greenleafs are not striving. Mr. Greenleaf is okay with whatever goes on. You don't have a sense that they're pushing everywhere. They're more at peace. The May family is driven. They, ha- they have to dominate. They have to get control of things. I don't think anything sums her up better than that. She had to control everything. She would not let certain things. The idea that they might take over her, prof- her property was almost undid her. She wanted to kill that bull. She wanted to get Greenleaf under her control, go kill the bull, and her words at the end when he got out of the car was, remember that your children made you do this. She, she could not take responsibility for the awful things that she did. And there's no sense that she's aware of that in her character. So I think, the con- and, and the Greenleaf's married in France, it's a Catholic country. She doesn't say they're Catholic, but it seems to me they are. And their children go to a convent school. Mr. Greenleaf would suffer a wrong before he would inflict suffering on a human being. That's straight out of Plato. That's out of Christ. So they're more at home home with nature. They don't have to dominate it. They don't have to prove that it's no longer depraved. They're at home. They're at peace with it. There's a... There's a peaceful quality of the Greenlee family in everything we do. It's not present in uh, Mrs. May's family. So this whole question of nature and natural law, I I touched on last week, and it seems to me it's illustrated really well in that family, in that story. Remember, if you you look at the handout I gave you, the modernity I gave this tonight, I think... It would be good if you, if you want to review this and look back over it, it, it might help you. Um, remember for the, for the two major Reformation theologians, Luther and Calvin, man had no free will that he could do no good without God's grace. Um, Luther believed that man was the arbiter of his own life, so that his reading of scripture was the ultimate source of things. Um, Calvin believed in man's depravity, that he didn't have free will, he didn't believe in the sacraments, and he believed that people were predestined to damnation or salvation. God's will was irresistible. Both of them had a very, very dark view of the world. Man was essentially depraved. if you look at the, at the social contract theorists, Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau, they all have a really dark view. Rousseau's the exception to that. R- Rousseau thought that man was naturally inherently good, but he still believed in the social contract because left to a state of nature, men would destroy themselves. The fundamental principle that all those men shared was that man exists in a state of war by nature. By nature, he's depraved. It's fundamental to just see that. The only way he could escape the violence that was the natural end of his condition was by entering into a social contract, to make a contract. For Hobbes, the, the form that it would take would be to, to give that power to a government that had totalitarian powers. It's, it's one of the aspects of our modern world. We live in a democracy, but there's, a tota- there's always been a totalitarian quality. To the power that we give government. Um, On the second page, I I gave that quote from the Declaration of Independence just as a contrast because we've ceased to have any sense of a natural law. The natural, the social contract theorists, had no sense of the natural law tradition. That tradition defines Catholicism. We believe that there's an inherent good in nature. The ultimate source of that is God's law. The, the reason a Catholic should have opposed um, slavery in the 19th century long before anybody else should have is because it's against God's law. You can't treat another human being that way. The reason a Catholic should oppose homosexuality is the same reason. When you, when, when you institute a law going against God's law, you're going against God, and we live in a world that's a bourgeois world um, that that has turned away from God and wants to get along. So, as a Catholic community, we're constantly aware of the ways in which we don't we don't find ourselves comfortable in the world. We're not supposed we're not supposed to be really. Um, here's the most important thing to come away. According to the social contract theorists, man lives in a state of war by nature. He makes a contract. The most important thing to come away from is that fact, and this, that the social contract is a convention. It's an artificial, man-made thing, which means it's constantly subject to what men do with it. Add Machiavelli to that mix. ever in power is going to use that to affect whatever he wants. If you're an ideologue, if you live in your head, which is where ideologues are, then you, you try to, in our world, you try to create a utopian world and use the government to bring it about. But you're not rooted, you're not guided by natural law because you have no sense of it. Law in the modern world is a convention. It's a man-made, artificial thing that was not true in the ancient world. And Plato's Republic is the great argument against that. I'll I'll come to that in just a second. Anyway, I want everybody to hold on to that. The Declaration has at the center and in the opening lines of the Declaration of Independence when in the course of human events, you all know this, to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God that's a direct reference to the natural law tradition. Our Declaration was based on it. Now everybody, I mean, everybody should ask the question, what's the general understanding of law today? Or, or even the Declaration of Independence. Do we root our thinking and laws in that document and the natural law tradition that it assumes?
2: Constitution, more likely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I hope I hope I'm not going too fast. It's, a, it's just another way of trying to show the, the dark world, where our world came from and why the darkness, why, the, why these stories take the form they do. Remember, we talked about this last week, remember the rivalry between Macomber and his wife. A man and a woman are rivals to each other. Today in the modern world they're, they're competing for jobs. Kill your husband, step over your wife, get ahead. We are rivals to each other because we live in a state of nature. We are, we are competitive to get ahead. A Darwinian view. Whoever The views that we live under in the modern world are dark. They're not in conformity with the natural law tradition. The natural law t- tradition is an embarrassment to the modern world because it's got its roots in God. Now, put all of these next to the, the, the classical view. If you look at page 3... Remember, I gave that example from Antigone when she wanted to to bury her brother and Creon refused. She made her appeal to the eternal law, said that it was greater than civic law. That's one of the earliest examples we we had of natural... Positive man-made law, as we believe it, has its roots in natural law, which has its roots in the law of nature which has its roots in scripture and divine law. Its ultimate source is God. The source of all law is him. When we start making laws out of tune with God, we're in trouble. Would would God ever have a law that would put us at odds with our nature? Put it that way. Yeah? Obvious. He wouldn't. The question is, do the laws that we make, are they really in conformity with his laws? Are there laws we should be overturning because they're out of tune with him? Are there laws should we be enacting to bring ourselves back into tune with him? In Plato's works, The Apology, The Republic, and The Phaedo, he came to certain conclusions which were conclusions based on natural reason, not faith, not faith. So one of the questions I want to ask him, are we, are we able to use reason to defend our faith today? How many of us are well-versed enough in reason to make a rational defense of our faith? Could we we go out into a public audience and and give a reason why somebody's not making sense in the way that they're using reason? In the apology, um, remember Plato said, the most important thing is to know yourself. It, It was proclaimed at that time that Socrates was one of the wisest people in the world, and Socrates said, It can only mean that I'm the wisest man because I know I don't know. And everybody else thinks they know. So he went around trying to talk with people and everywhere he went, people kept claiming they had knowledge about things and all of his questions showed they didn't. So one of the greatest things that set him apart was his awareness that he lived in ignorance. Go back to the women we've been looking at. Leota, Mrs. May. Who, I mean, what's the give me some of the um, sister and why I live at the post office, or what's the one in Revelation, Mrs. Turpin? How many of them live with any sense of ignorance that there are things they don't know? R- um, Leontes in Wintersdale. was there anything in him that said, I might be wrong here? Was there any questioning?
2: Is that called humility, or what is that?
0: about what you don't know. Yeah, for sure. One, I mean, Socrates would have said, wonder. Okay. Whether we're open to things, whether we're questioning, or whether we go around thinking we know, we know the answer, so we're closed off to learning, to mystery. The fundamental principle, one of the fun- most important principles of the Republic remember, to mind your own business. So, know yourself, fundamentally, mind your business, mind your own business. Remember, one of the arguments of the Republic is, there's no way we can be just to another person if we don't make our souls better. So the most important thing for us is not to change other people, it's to change ourselves. Because if we do that, what we bring to our work with other people will be more just. And we... we, Sorry? What Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the
2: world. Oh, Gandhi. Yes, yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah, right. Well known Catholic. Yeah. (laughs) Mind your own business. Um, Remember, the most important thing was to learn to order our own souls, and Plato knew that we could not do that without divine help. The only way out of the cave is to begin to question, and there's that transcendent world outside that beckons.
1: Does that mesh with being an evangelist? Huh?
0: How
1: does that mesh mesh with being an evangelist?
0: I think it meshes really well. Socrates, I mean you can say Socrates is the first evangelist. He went out questioning. He didn't go out to antagonize people. He went out to question to change the way they saw things in the case so they could get out. So in in a sense he's like a prototype of it. I think sometimes, I mean it changes with Christ obviously because now we've got a dogma but I think the underlying spirit doesn't, because Socrates would have said you can't do anything without humility, um, and Christ would have said the same thing with, I mean, the, the, there's a change, I mean, but there's a humility with disciples, but this belief in a truth, too, that, that makes, it, it seems to me harder, but, but I would say it, it dovetails in, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a point at which they, have a, they share a ground One of the arguments in the Phaedo, where he's making an argument for the immortality of the soul, is if the soul has a certain nature, it's important for you to mind your own business, to do what's right, you can never, you will never be right in hurting another person when it's not due. He accepted the punishment that was given to him because all all of his followers came and said, escape, run away. He said, I can't escape. The punishment is owed me. I grew up in the city. I owe my life to it. I have to give my life. That's why he went to his own suffering. He makes the argument that it's more important to suffer a wrong before you cause suffering to another. Now, these are rational arguments. They're not matters of faith. These were arguments made before Christ came into the world. Begin with the belief that man is depraved, so that his reason, his natural reason, is blasted, there's no way he can come to any of these arguments. So the modern world has, has had the natural ground taken away from him, which is a, a ground for faith, because faith and reason are supposed to come together, and with no sense of the natural law on which we stand on. So is there any reason the world is as dark as it is? I hope that, I don't want to leave this too bleak, but I want to try to make sense of why the stories that we're reading are as dark as they are. Um,
2: do you think it's darker than any other point in time? Because you keep bringing up the way from God. During I do. The of, when you bring up Moby Dick and everything else, that this horrible thing happened. But then again, how did our faith, how did my grandparents' faith, and their parents, and their parents, find faith and find God through this world turned away from God time period. Yeah, I don't They, 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 they never did. You didn't, did. anybody else just know their parents never I mean, it was, for them it may have, but for many it did not.
0: No, I know, I mean, I, I I mean, mean, we wouldn't be here if I didn't, yeah. if I didn't see that, but, but I'm trusting that everybody here recognizes that by and large, let me put it this way, we're the first civilization to have had God enter the world Wait, let me go back. The pagans believed in gods. There was a divine order. The divine was a part of everything they did. We know that from the works. The gods were there. Everybody in the pagan world knew the dangers of hubris, Odysseus. You can't look at any of the poets, the philosophers, and not, and not be confronted with the dangers of hubris, pride for all of us. But the greatest danger was pride, not knowing our limits, who we are, the importance of seeing that in relation to the gods. So in some ways, there's a preparation for Christ in that pagan world. They believed in the divine. In some ways, they're in a better, I would argue, they're in a better position than we are. We're the only people historically, the the only civilization that exists after God actually came into the world to denounce him. Christian Middle Ages ended 300 years, 400 years ago. So we've lived with three centuries, four centuries, denying God. So my, my position, I don't want to go, I, I, want, I don't want to get on, I want to stop this because I really want to get to the, but my argument is um, that we're in a darker way because we, we've been given supernatural gifts. What we've done to them in our age in some ways makes us work. And if we look at, I mean, take a look at the modern abortion, homosexuality, we, we've made a compromise with the world to get along for the sake of the social contract theory that we look, to be comfortable. To have money and be comfortable are the, are the ideals of a bourgeois world. That's our world. We've made a compromise with it. And the effect of that, I think, is far darker than anything else. I'm not, I'm not going to take the position, I'm not going to press it. Here. There's not a question in my mind that every, every century in history has been full of barbarities and horrors. I'm not questioning that. What I'm saying is there are aspects of the modern world I believe are important for us to look at if we're going to live our faith, otherwise I wouldn't be here. And it's important to see the nature of that darkness. Um, nobody, I'm, I'm not here to say our faith our faith isn't real, and that faith isn't real for a lot of people, but a lot of things are going on to show that the evidence of, of, what, of the world we're in. It's not an accident that most people call this world a post-Christian world. God's dead; he's out of the picture. That's true for the greater majority of people. Um, anyway, let me stop there. I don't, I don't want to, That's a that's a longer discussion. I want to, I really want to get to the stories. But
2: well, I like the, what you said about wonder because I think it has to do with um, evangelism. Because if you're experiencing God, you have wonder. And I'm looking here in, at uh, the which family is this? Yeah, the Greenleaf family because it says the five girls are always filthy. And I thought, well, maybe they had wonder and were. <coughs> love dandelions and dirt and trees and flowers. yeah. I mean, they, yeah. You know, they didn't spend time working on the image of their house because they were
0: right. <coughs> busy
2: busy with mysteries of other wonderful things.
0: We, we certainly know that they don't press. There, there's an element of detachment, of disinterest when she you know, when she comes to the door, the, the reception she gets from her children is sort of it's a disinterest. I mean they, they just stand they stand a little bit apart they're at home with things. Um, They don't fight among themselves so much. We don't get any sense of that. She's putting a contrast before us that has a significance for understanding what happens with man. Last word on those stories before we turn away. I know there's some disagreement on these things but um, Mrs. Turpin is the only character in the O'Connor stories that seems to have some clear awareness of, of a grace being offered before the end. And to her credit, remember, I, I, she goes through that that Socratic process, the elenctus, the, the self-questioning. She goes home wondering, she asks her husband to kiss her. There are different things going on in her. She's a very, very different woman. And she comes out and she gets really angry. at God says, who do you think you are? And the echo comes back and... But she's left with that vision of the souls going to heaven and her place in it in a way that rebukes her. She's at the end, she's not at the beginning where she thought she was. I think it's a humbling moment and it, I think it it changes her. Um, it's harder to read the other stories but my own reading on it is that, my own sense of all of them, we can disagree on this, is, is that for both um, the grandmother um, Enoch and um, and Mrs. May, my own reading of those stories is that they receive grace. There's a mercy that's been, the, um, the bull is, in, is a Christ image, it impales her. Remember it says her sight was restored even though what she saw was unbearable. If you think about living a certain way all your life and then suddenly you have one of these moments of aporia, of a, a violent shattering, come out of the cave take the cave. Anybody who's lived in that cave for a long time suddenly comes into the life? How bearable is it going to be? Does that mean it's a reject or that's evidence that you're not out? No, it's evidence that you're out. My own reading of those endings is that every one of them has received a grace and the cost of it is violence. That they would not have received it in any other way because they were all too hard-headed. I think the same thing is true of um, the grandmother. And I know there's different readings on that, but I'd, I'd say for her to say to the misfit, why, you're one of my own, for her to make an identification with e- an evil man when her whole life has been spent trying to show how innocent she is, that, you know, and for the misfit as well, that I don't, um, I, it reminds me of the lawyer, he, he will not go on he may continue to be a, a misfit, he may commit crimes, but something's happened. What will happen to those figures, we don't know. She leaves us there, she leaves us there, I believe consciously as an artist, in the midst of a mystery. It's where she, she believes most of us belong, when, when that's the last place most of us wanna be, so. Anyway, we, we're leaving the grotesque comedy, now we're returning to Faulkner and um, Flower and Judas. Um, I want to just spend a few minutes with Faulkner's story and then I want to end looking at um, Flowering Judas because to me it's, it's more powerful. Let me just say a couple of things about, about um, that evening's sun. The backdrop of the story is um, the discrepancies between the races. Some major changes taking place in the sound, and Faulkner articulates it in the opening. Remember, he says, This is the Compson family, we've seen it before. By the way, there's a discrepancy here. We learn from Quentin, this is Quimpson, or Quentin telling the story. I'm assuming you all know that. He's nine years old, he's going back to a, a point 15 years earlier, which makes him 24 when the story when we get the story. We know from Sound of the Fury that he died at 20. He was born in 1890, he died remember in 1910, um, committed suicide then. My belief, I mean there's that discrepancy, you, who knows what to do with it. My belief is Faulkner wrote this story earlier because no mention is made of Benji in this one. My belief is that he wrote this as a short story and something of this be- became the germ for a larger story that became Sound of the Fury. I no evidence, I don't want to. It's my guess, I'm trying to account for the discrepancy. But we know it's told from Quentin's point of view, and he's speaking as we know in the beginning in the we voice. There's that southern communal sense again. It's not an I. Let, let me just read the opening line because it sets the stage, I think, for the story. Monday's no different from any other weekday in Jefferson now. The streets are paved now and the telephone and electric companies are cutting down more and more of the shade trees, the water oaks, the maples, the locusts. A technological world is taking, this is where the bear ended, remember? Selling the woods, the, the the lumber trucks, the trains coming in. That whole technological world was encroaching on the wilderness and myth. The bear, that world was disappearing. And, st- and st- some influence that world had on shaping man, that connection with nature and the hunt, is being lost. Um, All of this was, um, are cutting down these trees to make room for iron poles bearing clusters of bloated and ghostly and bloodless grapes. And we have a city laundry which makes the rounds, there's that we. He's speaking with a community voice. He's a 24-year-old young man which makes the rounds on Monday morning, gathering the bundles of clothes into bright-colored, specially-made motor cars, the soiled wearing of a whole week now, flees apparition-like behind alert and irritable electric horns with a long diminishing noise." So the focus here isn't so much the disintegration of a family, we'll get something of that in the story, it's, it's this sense of, of a radical change having taken place from 15 years earlier, when they were still a communal people and now everything is impersonal. Trucks fly by, apparition-like, carrying this laundry load. The, the black women aren't doing it anymore. <clears throat> but fifteen years ago on Monday morning the quiet, dusty, shady streets would be full of Negro women, balanced, and, and now we're taken into the story of what happens between uh, Nancy and the mostly the, the Compson children. The, the, the more important themes of the prom, of the story it seems to me is a in a cultivated injustice against the blacks that's that's illustrated in what happens with the kids. <clears throat> the evidence of it is, is all that happens with Nancy remember she goes to jail and Stovall who's presumably the father of the child that she carries, is not in jail. He's a white man. Um, We have no reason for understanding why she's in jail and why when he kicked her the way he did in the street when she said you owe me money, that she's humiliating this white man by implicating her in in her pregnancy. He kicks her (coughs) violently and nothing's done to him. And more, he's the minister No, he's a bank clerk, but he's also, he's a bank clerk, but he's a minister of a church. So, there's an indirect condemnation of the religious practice, once again, the religious practices of this community. And one of the effects of that is that the blacks turn against themselves. Jesus' response to that, her her boyfriend or lover, is to want to kill her because he knows that the child she's carrying is not his, and to kill Stovall. And you know that the drama of the story arises because Nancy's frightened, terrified, that he's going to kill her if she's by herself. So this sense of injustice that permeates this culture is really deep. There's a grotesque quality to this because the way he presents it shows the focus is largely on the kids. You know, wh- what does she mean? What is she doing that? Why is she doing that? And he's afraid. No, he's not. He's a scaredy cat. We keep getting this, this play between the kids that show an absolute unawareness. An and at the end, when they leave Nancy's cabin, and the kids are still squabbling, the fathers the fathers doing nothing to make these kids aware of what's going on. This injustice is just getting passed on. So I think those are the the the, the great themes. There, there is some sense of a Calvinistic background. I, 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 can't press it. It seems to me it's implied in a really thin way in Nancy, because she's so fatalistic in everything sh- she does. She's, she assumes the worst. She's clear that she's going to meet her end, and she, and sh- her attitude is, I've done nothing wrong, but it's going to happen. My end is coming. She deserves it. She does everything she can to get away from it, although part of her is resigned to it. Um, I just want to read a couple of passages to show the, um, the effect of this. If you turn to page 4, it seems to me the real beauty of this story um, rests in what I would call Faulkner's use of counterpoint. It's the same thing you would see in a Mozart piece or a Bach piece or a Beethoven that a theme would be announced and, and the development of that theme would take the form of something counterpointing it, being played against it in musical terms. Faulkner's doing exactly that. On page four, at the top, Lane was always dark. This is where Jason got scared on Halloween, Caddy said. I didn't, Jason said. Can't Aunt Rachel do anything the father says? Can't he help out? Um, um, It isn't clear whether she's um, Jesus's um, relation or not? Yes, you. So the father's asking this question about whether she can't turn to the aunt for help. Yes, you did. Caddy said, "You were scareder than of You were scareder than T.P. Even scareder than niggers." Um, Jason, the son, will say repeatedly, "Nancy's a nigger." Dark Dilsie's, he will, he will identify them. So inbred is this awareness from a child. And there's no reason to suppose anybody would correct it. It's accepted. Father's not saying anything. Nobody is. Um, can't nobody do nothing with him now, Nancy said. He said yeah, I done woke up the devil in him and ate but one thing going to lay it down again. That sense of the devil. It's just this dark sense of doom. Well, he's gone now, Father said. There's nothing for you to be afraid of now. And if you just let white men alone, it's her fault. Mm-hmm. Stovell Stovell had nothing to do with this. I mean, this, it's funny, you know, like so many of the stories, but when you look at this closely, it's dark. Um, let what white men alone, Caddy said. Here's the kids, how let them alone? She's five, or seven, sorry, she doesn't know. He ain't gone nowhere, Nancy said, I can feel him, I can feel him now in this lane. He's hearing us talk, every word hit somewhere waiting. I ain't seen him, and I ain't going to see him again, but once more and that razor in his mouth, that razor on um, string down his back. I wasn't scared. The cross purpose is so clear here, right? There is this horrible tragic drama going on with Nancy, and the kids are squabbling saying, you're a scaredy cat. No, I'm not scared. Well, you know, They're so at odds. There's nothing bringing them together. There's no point of contact between them. I wasn't scared, Jason said. If you'd behave yourself, you'd have kept out of this, Father said, but it's all right now. He's probably in St. God, it's just, what a compound. Probably got another wife by now and forgot all about you. If he was, I'd better not find out about it, Nancy said. I'd stand there right over them, and every time he wrapped her, I'd cut that arm off. That's not the only thing she cut off. I'd cut his head off, and I'd slit her belly. And I'd, hush, Father said. Slit whose belly, Nancy? Caddy said. I wasn't scared, Jason said. I'd rock, rock down this lane by myself. Yeah, Caddy." You wouldn't dare to put your foot down it if we were not here. I just want to refer you to another. On page 6, the same thing's happened in a beautiful way. Again, Dilsey's been sick, you know, and Nancy's come in to help. Dilsey cooked supper too, and that night just before dark, Nancy came into the kitchen. How do you know he's back, Dilsey said. You ain't seen him. Jesus is a nigger, Jason said. I can feel him, Nancy said. I can feel him laying yonder in the ditch. Tonight, Dizzy said. Is he there tonight? Dizzy's a nigger too, Jason said. You try to eat something, Dizzy said. I don't want nothing, Nancy said. I ain't a nigger, Jason said. and goes on. It's here that she says she's a hell-born child. She has the sense of doom that just hangs with her. Um, let me just read the end, and then I want to um, look at Brian um, Judas they leave the cabin and you remember that Nancy does everything she can to bribe the kids, she says we're gonna have fun she wants, to, she, she tries to manipulate it and she, they even sneak out of the house without the parents know and finally Jason who says keeps saying I want to get home because it's not fun and it's interesting to watch the kids try to manipulate her what will you give us so they're already in that mode of using each other as you know as kids um, and it's enforced. It's in that black-white relationship. They leave the cabin with her, lamenting, in song. Um, and the the father says, "Who will do our washing now?" I said, "I'm not a nigger." Jason said, high and close above father's head. "You're worse," Caddy said. "You're a tattletale. If something was to jump out, you'd be scarier than a nigger." "I wouldn't," Jason said. "You'd cry," Caddy said. "Caddy," father said. "I wouldn't," Jason said. Security cat, Caddy said. Candace, Father said. I just want to take one minute because I really want to get to flying. Through. Why does Faulkner leave the story here? To me, it's so appropriate. He doesn't tie it up. doesn't make it nice. They're leaving Nancy. We don't know what's going to happen. We know, by the way, we know from Sound of the Fury that Nancy's bones are in the... And I, it's 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 a curiosity to me whether they're referring to the horse named Nancy or whether it's <laughs> this Nancy. I don't know that we know. But why does he leave?
1: But don't we kind of know what happened? What? Because well, on the last page, um, and this is the 24-year-old Clinton yeah. looking back at the nine-year-old Clinton, right? Right. And he says, "But we could hear her because she began just after we came up out of the ditch, the sound that was not singing and not unsinging." Who will do our washing now, Father, I said. So to me, when I read that, because I, you know that was not singing and not unsinging, came up several other times in the story when Nancy was really scared out of her. Almost voice. two persons
0: in that one phrase Quentin. that describes her as.
1: And, and so it's Quentin now recognizing that and, and I think realizing that that Nancy was killed because why else would he say
0: who will do They're our washing work? now? I, I, I that isn't for me. That's not firm because he's going. He's it's presumably he's reporting what he said as a nine-year-old, you know, 15 years earlier, and it seems to me it's reasonable to, to wonder what will happen to her. But we don't. I mean, we don't know. It's, we don't know. It's a you can. You can make that conclusion, but it's not certain. We, we don't know that for sure. He could be asking that question because they're leaving and she's terrified of dying. He's the oldest one. He probably has a greater sense than Caddy or Jason about why she's frightened. And but She was singing right before she committed, tried to commit suicide, but she wouldn't let herself do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So I don't know. Maybe she's going to try again to tell her. We don't know. The question I'm asking is why does he end it leaving Nancy's cabin and and ending it with this squabble between the kids? What's the effect of that as we read it?
1: Well I only brought that up because to me the ending sort of said that in the end everybody was oblivious to what Nancy's problem was and how scared she was and yeah. that she Seriously believed that she was going to get killed, and to me, if in fact Quentin did realize that that is what happened, and the best thing he could come up with was who would do our washing now, just points out to me that that they were just absolutely
0: yeah. clueless,
1: and so what you kind of see in Nancy's decline is, in essence, the decline of the Compton family. So, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't call it oblivious. I call
0: it benevolent. They didn't. Benevolent? Yeah, they were like, don't want to see it. I don't that's want to acknowledge it. So is that the right word, benevolent? No, no, no. It's not. What Oblivious. Be? Maybe. Oblivious? <laughs> benevolent means good. Well, Benevolence is goodness. Okay, I used the wrong one. I was thinking they, they just don't want to acknowledge it. They're, they're just like, I'm going to ignore this and then it won't be. Oh,
1: like head in the they, sand?
0: Yeah. Kind of head in the How sand. old are these or children? Though? Nine, seven, and five. No, they,
1: but the, but the I factors. think that's key here.
0: They, they really aren't concerned about her as a
1: person who's about to lose her life. They don't know. They're in the they're, moment of
0: arguing with each other. That's the last... That's a, okay, here. Right, that's, my, that's, my, and that's where I wanted to go. Yeah. Now, I just want to take a minute. I've had talks with our grand... I had talks with our kids when they were three or four. I mean, serious talks. We've got a nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. I've talked with our eight, seven, eight, nine-year-olds About dragons, and what what distresses me when I see a world trying to make dragons nice. I mean, I've had serious talks with all of our grandchildren. For for the father to leave it, Candace, that is the only concern here. Was shut up among yourselves when there's another problem here that's deeper, makes the problem graver. He seems to have no nothing that's gone on. We never see the father. Yeah, no, no, it is. I mean, there's not a the father is absent again in this family um because you you could i i there's no i would have no difficulty saying to a five-year-old if something like tattling or sneaking or lying was going on i'd want to sit down and have a few minutes with that if the person were if the child were nine i'd get more serious the father's saying nothing his concern is that they don't they're not squabbling and nancy this whole black white relationship thing and the, the the beauty of this thing is this counterpoint reinforces the sense of the distance between them and um there's no father nothing is going on nothing's being said you know the wife is saying you mean you're going to go protect this black woman and leave me here by myself that's her concern and the father's concern is that they be nice to each other That that he doesn't talk with them about what's going on with this woman all it does is reinforce our sense of how vast this divide is between human beings, who are human beings, fellow, all of them God's children, who happen to be of a different color. Right,
2: make Nancy white,
0: and he would have a totally different I, I, don't, I myself don't think so, because I think the father is just, You know, remember from Sound of the Fury, he drinks himself, he doesn't deal with anything. He doesn't deal, doesn't deal with, he doesn't deal with him, his own family. I mean, if one of our children were talking to the other children like this, I'd want to have a talk with them. I, my answer wouldn't be Candace; wouldn't have been Amy. I was, had something to. But anyway, this—it's a powerful, powerful story. It's—it's—it's—I it's, think it's one of Faulkner's best. Be, and notice how he does—he never intrudes. He doesn't moralize. He doesn't make judgments. He puts the story there, and the story tells itself. And we know exactly if we're reading. The awful depths that are being exposed by putting them next to each other the way it does it's really well done artistically I think. Let's look at Flowering Judas. I'm going to skip the story. Here's I want because I want to go to the end. You all know the story. The backdrop of the story I was going to I should have asked sorry. The backdrop of the story is that a socialist revolution a communist revolution is going on in Mexico. It's when the communists came in and closed down the churches, took church properties, and began the persecution of Catholics. The Socialist Revolution. Laura is an American who's come to Mexico. She was born Catholic, raised Catholic. She has a Catholic identity. She does everything she can to not get involved with anything, although she's supporting the revolution. And she does it with some sense that there's a heroism to it, that they're trying to do something good. The irony of the story is the revolution is presenting itself as if it's offering people salvation. It's doing exactly what the church did, but it's offering a practical answer here in the world. So it's like, it, the, the irony here is it's, it's the, that's, that's the attraction of communism and it's damning point. It's, it's bringing the kingdom down to earth saying we can realize it here. So all of the social Marxists, Obama, I believe his mind was filled with these notions of making the kingdom present here, making everything okay. Bragioni is looked at as a savior. Laura looked at the revolution, but she's gotten disillusioned from it, because she's seen what happens and she's experiencing this immediately with Brad Gioni and, and the hypocrisies. So, in some ways the two of them are a lot alike. It's like they had these ideals but they're both disillusioned and no longer hold on to them. Now, you know that one of the great things that I've been pushing at you guys forever is the difficulty we have with reading and you know how important that is. It's how well do we read? So here's my quiz for the night. I'm going to read the ending in a minute, but I'm, here's a quiz. Pop quiz. You're all going to be graded. Why does Catherine Ann Porter write this? Oh no, let me stop. What tense is the story written in?
2: Present
0: Don't anybody look. Present, present tense. Why did she do this? every story that we've read, that I'm aware of right now, every story that we've read except for the stream of consciousness things with sound of through. but even there, the tense uses what we call the preterite, past tense. It's preterite because when you go into a story, it's typically in the past tense because you're telling a story that's already been completed in the past. He said, he said. It's already done. That's the tense typically used in a story. Every story we've read, every story we've read has been in past tense, except this one. Why? So, this question about reading, let go. Why did Catherine Ann Porter write this in the present tense ex- until the end? Now, let me read it. You know that before this point, eugenio, by the way, eugenio means eugenio new birth. Eucharist, well, good, you, Genial birth, new birth. The story's about offering a salvation, a new birth to people. People looked at Bragioni as a savior, so they see him in place of Christ. It's one of the major ironies of the story, okay? A couple of pages before the end, they mention Bragioni and I mean Eugenio's death, and Bragioni dismisses him, said, Well done, God, we're well rid of him. Um, he has no place. He, his way of looking at these are the. He was to be the leader of this revolution to bring in a new world, and the fact that these people die is of no meaning to him. He just dismisses them. The most important thing to him are food, drink, sex. Would like to have it with Laura. The interesting thing is, he is like a Christ figure because remember when he goes home, what does his wife do? Washes his feet. She weeps over him for the wrong she thinks she's done him. So we've got this interesting figure, a a Christ-like figure, but full of ironies because there's really no comparison. He's not Christ-like in any way, except in appearance. Laura's Catholic. She's doing everything she can to distance herself from people. The only two episodes that are told in the past tense during the story both have to do with lovers, and she refused them both. So, except for those two episodes to deal with love relationships, which are in the past tense, everything else is in the present tense. Except the ending. Now, why did Porter do that? Here, let me read the ending, and then I'd, I'd like to see what you think. Um, <clears throat> Laura takes off her serge dress. She gets ready for bed. Numbers tick in her brain like little clocks. The present tense you don't need time. Right? Because you're always on an ongoing present. Everything she does is to take her outside of a life that relates to, that gives frames of reference to time or other things, except for those two love relationships. And in both of them, she rejected them. Numbers tick in her brain like little clocks, soundless doors close of themselves around her. If you would sleep, you must not remember anything. The children will say tomorrow good morning, my teacher. The poor, she tries to do everything she can to take herself out of time. My teacher, the poor prisoners who come every day bringing flowers to their jailer, one, two, three, she starts to count. It's monstrous to confuse love with revolution, night with day, life with death. Ah, Eugenio, the tolling of the midnight bell is a sig bell, is a signal. We're in present tense, but what does it mean? Get up, Laura, and follow me. Come out of your sleep, out of your bed, out of this strange house. What are you doing in this house? We're getting him in a dream speaking to her. because It's happening in the dream, right? In present tense. What are you doing? Without a word, without fear, she rose and reached for Eugenio's hand. Past tense. We are outside of that time. Now, this whole question about how well do we read? <laughs> this is how well are we reading this? Without a word, um, she rose um, and reached for his hand, but he eluded her with a sharp, sly smile and drifted away, all past tense. This is not all you shall see, murderer, he said. Follow me, (coughs) I will show you a new country, but it is far away and we must hurry. His words are in present because they're speaking as if it's happening then in the dream. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand, no, She clung first to the stair rail, and then to the topmost branch out of the Judas tree that bent down slowly and set her upon the earth, and then to the rocky ledge of a cliff, and then to the jagged wave of a sea. It was not water, but a desert of crumbling stone. It's an arid, I'm going to call it an arid, infernal world. Where are you taking me, she asked in wonder, but without fear, to death. And it's a long way off, and we must hurry, said Eugenio. No, said Laura, not unless you take my hand. Then eat these flowers, poor prisoner, said Eugenio in a voice of pity. Take and eat. From the Judas tree, he stripped the warm, bleeding flowers and held them to her lips. Remember, the Judas tree was named after Judas, the one, the tree he hung himself on. She saw his hand was fleshless. A cluster of small, white, petrified branches in his eye sockets were without light, but she ate the flowers greedily, for they satisfied both hunger and thirst. Murder, said Eugenio, and cannibal, this is my body and my blood, Laura cried. No, and at the sound of her own voice she awoke trembling and was afraid to sleep again. Past tense. Now what is she doing? This is extraordinary, I think, that she did this. What is she doing? This is what writers do. Any thoughts?
2: It was almost like she was trying to replace Christ with Eugenia. It was very, I couldn't stand the story. Um, You know, the whole concept of the Marxism versus the Catholic, you know, going to meet in the middle you with know, this coming of a battle. And it was almost as if in the end it was trying to take her away from her Catholicism and replace it with something else that was not as...
0: Or return her to it. Interesting. Let me give you my thoughts on this and because everybody looks a little bit... I think what's happening is, and why she did the... That was, to me, just a stroke of just genius, just a real brilliance. Um, Laura does everything she can to avoid Christ. Let me just put it as starkly as I can. She does everything she can to avoid Him. I mean, in the simplest term, because He asks us to give our lives up. She does everything she can to avoid Him, and she does that by living in the present as a prisoner. She imprisons herself in, the, in a timeless, ongoing present. She does everything she can not to relate to time. When we get anything having to do with time in the past tense, it's those two love relationships. That's, that's significant. Both of them had to do with love. Those are the only two references. And they make it clear that she wants nothing to do with love. She's identified herself with this revolution, with all the hopes that she brought to it, but lives now in disillusionment and she's disillusioned with this hero who himself is a pathetic parody of Christ. Um, but what happens at the end shows that she can't escape him. She's, she feels guilty because she's implicated in Eugenio's death. She knows that he was waiting for Bragioni. She just thought if he would only wait a little longer. Bragioni cares nothing. He cared nothing about it. He wouldn't have gone to him anyway and despairing he takes the the narcotics that she brought and overdoses, he dies. So her dream in a sense is is a revelation of her implication in her death. And it's interesting that it's a Christ, I mean it's presented in terms of the Eucharist. Murderer said she ate the flowers greedily, they satisfied both hunger and thirst. This is a Eucharistic moment. Murderer said Eugenio and cannibal, this is my body and my blood. That is, He's a Christ figure in the sense that she betrays him. She's eating him in substitution um, of the Eucharist. He's, he, he's betrayed by her. And we know that. I mean, what we, we know that you know, the, the Eucharist is such a central defining event for us. We either become bread and wine for others or we use others bread and wine for ourselves. Anytime we use other people, we invert the Eucharist in that act. And, and we become the ones taking Christ to the cross, making another person a Christ figure, using them. So she's Catholic, she's, she's been doing everything she can to keep herself in a timeless ongoing present so that she doesn't have to deal with time or memories, or reference points, until this moment. And when she learns of Eugenio's death, she has this dream. And in the dream, she becomes a Judas figure. Now my question, and, and it's presented in the past tense, and I think it's, it's Porter's way of showing us that she's, that the dream takes her outside of the present moment. And here's my question. This is my body and my blood, Laura cried no. Remember, that's her Mantra: No, to say no to everything. Um, no. At the sound of her own voice, she awoke, trim, past tense, and was afraid to begin. She's in the past tense. How do we read this moment?
1: Like a forever continuing
0: state. I don't. I mean, to me, it's really. She doesn't go back to the present. (coughs) Go ahead. You you
1: think it's a revelation? I mean, the fact that she says no,
0: and then wakes herself up with that. Wakes
1: herself up with it. Sort of got me to thinking. Well, maybe, maybe she realized that you know she had she was wrong in what she was trying to do, and that maybe there was something she needed to do differently.
0: This to me reminds me so much of Flannery O'Connor. What she does with these you know these endings. I don't know. I mean, these women knew each other. The, the question, she's in the present, this eternal, ongoing present through the thing. In the end, after the dream, she wakes up into a, a preterite tense. She's in the past tense. Is that an indication that she's been violently shaken out of her isolation? That this is a Christ-like moment. I mean, we don't know conversion or, you know, but it's in the past tense. She's not in the present tense anymore. And she comes out of this dream. It's interesting that O'Connor didn't, I mean, Porter didn't return her to the present. So it seems to me one of the questions we have to ask is did this dream, it's like one of these moments of grace in O'Connor, did this dream of her own betrayal go to her core, so shake her that she sees herself as a Judas figure, betraying Christ, um, that she says no to it and comes out of it in the past tense. I just, I want, what I'd like to do is leave that as a question. Because um, it's, it's late and I wanted to, I thought with two stories I'd get out of here early and I didn't do it.
2: <laughs>
0: um, but I'd like, I, it's, a, it's a, an amazing story, what O'Connor's doing with tense here and what she does with the story. So it's a good story to meditate. On. I hope you'll read it again and look at the ending. Um, it's a frightening moment, terrifying moment for her to see herself that way. And it's interesting what Porter does with the time shift. Um, Did you ever have any clue that when you first got involved in this, you'd have to deal with commas and no commas and present tense and past tense and preterite and...
2: Anything in literature,
1: yeah. (laughs) It comes with the territory.
0: I hope you all see that punctuation and present... You know, we make, the grammarians in high school make these mosaic, the 12th and 13th commandment. What artists do with this stuff is amazing, truly amazing. Watch what they do with language. You guys have a good Thanksgiving, all of you. Have a really good Thanksgiving.
2: Sometimes doesn't make it as clear. I some this one I, 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 see that was clear to me. Absolutely clear. she yeah. <laughs> right. a <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: This is, a, I think, the, I read I'm a letter she died at the age of 39, from lupus. And all of her stories up to the last three. The the last three stories, which Revelation have. was on the first of the last so, three, she began to make, she was worried that people didn't see it, so she made it a lot clearer, so in the last one, in Revelation, it kind of hit you like a truck. Yeah, this one, yeah, yeah, but she, you know. We'll see. Well, I missed your whole present impact. Uh, I did too. I did too. I didn't <laughs> think so about that. choice. So you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good <laughs> <laughs> okay. job. We're getting
2: better. We're comforts. <laughs> so, yes. you know, you, you
1: can, can not. <laughs> you can <Yes>. <laughs> but it's going to work. Well, the okay, thing I, I <laughs> think I've learned. gives us a story, there's something there. Yeah, and so I start looking for it. Yeah. Sometimes I find it, sometimes I don't, but I know it's there. Yeah. And the reason you're learning this theorem here right now, this the story did just get out of thin air.
0: Now is we've got to get out. Not her fault. I just want to get out of here. Don't you cause trouble, Karen.